The Witch I had high expectations for and was thoroughly impressed with and made me only more excited for The Lighthouse. But Phantom of the Paradise I just felt totally bowled over by. I was I was so amazed with how flamboyant and wonderful and theatrical it was and just in totally embracing in all of its referential points. And there were so many moments I caught these very clear, visually inspired moments. I think that there, there was one really great moment, especially with the gothic influences, that when the when the performance of Faust first opens up, which is what they're doing, the the yeah. play that's being put on the Paradise, the set is literally the expressionistic uh, set from like the Doctor of Cabinet, <laughs> uh, the Cabinet of Doctor Caligari. It's literally great. that that drawn on shadow style thing. It's exactly like that, and I'm just like, ah, it's so great. <laughs> it just creates like like, and and then I know because previously in like Tarantino podcasts and stuff before, I've just totally shit on the idea of like being overtly referential in your material. I think but it the- depends, right? I think like an homage depends on where you meet it and where it comes from. It totally depends, and I mean De Palma does so many of his own as well. Especially, you know, there's like five Hitchcock references at least in every of his movies. Very blatant Hitchcock references as well. There's literally a scene uh, like a, a shower scene in this one done j- just like Psycho. Not the murder itself though but the approach of it you're like, even if you haven't seen it you're like, oh that's Psycho, that's obviously what that is. But it's done in that, in that very wonderfully uh, loving way. Like it doesn't feel like it's just ripping from it. It definitely feels like it's inheriting it. And You said that one of the best uh, one of the best touch of evil shots you've ever seen. Yeah, so that's that's a, quite an amazing thing, and uh, I'm I'm not sure if I want to tell you how it's done, the scene here, or if I want to let you see it on your own. I've been conflicted as if I want to bring this up for this way, but I think it might be my favorite Touch of Evil homage, even more so than the uh, opening for the player, which is, of course, another wonderful referential shot to uh, Touch of Evil. So I think... That sounds fantastic. I'm moving it up my list here. I just put it into so I'll watch it the next few movies. Uh, my biggest takeaway, of course, this week is Dracula, which we're discussing. But uh, <laughs> I guess the the other one. Did we go over uh, all my Universal stuff? Uh no, we're, we're we haven't hit all that yet because you just kind of did that in like two days, very unexpectedly. <laughs> right. You just started uh, watching uh, all of them, and then it was like, oh, what's this fifth one in a row? Here we go. <laughs> So I watched Dracula, Frankenstein, Mummy, Invisible Man, The Wolfman, Bride of Frankenstein, Phantom of the Opera within a couple days. Jeez, um, Invisible Man blew me away. I feel like that, that feels modern in the way it's darkly comic. Uh, I'd love to do a little bit more with the Universal Horrors, but uh, I might leave that opening so I could still do a general podcast about the Potentially. Are you going to watch it? Like, I know Creature is a favorite of yours. Are you going to watch that one again this year? Or? Uh, I think I've seen it this year, so I might... I, I might though. I really like it. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see what else. Uh, yeah, Dracula was amazing, of course. But we're going to get to that. Um, I'm also doing the Tazvir uh, South Asian Film Festival, which is a uh, the second largest Asian film festival in the world after Toronto, and it's right here in Seattle. Um, I saw uh, Ravening there. It's a really dope horror movie, actually. That feels like a Cronenberg. But it's a uh, it's like one of the Bollywood horse, which is an emerging idea. So I like to support that kind of stuff. We'll have a review up in a couple weeks here. That's interesting. I, I think the Cronenberg comparison is interesting there. I'm guessing you mean like early kind of Cronenberg stuff, like yeah. Rabbit and The Brood and such, like that yeah, kind of earlier yeah. grittier kind of Cronenberg. Obviously not modern Cronenberg, who's kind of shied away from that, just going into crime thrillers now. Apologies, I don't know their names, but they're they're Bollywood people, so I I guess I wouldn't be familiar. But uh, the 
the lady in it, she has these ravishing green eyes, and she looks so hungry. This PhD student meets her and introduces her. He's in, like, a meat club, so he introduces her to all these rare cuts of meats until uh, he starts serving her parts of his body, and uh, then it just takes off from there into, like, a, a physical whore. When you say things like meat club, it makes it sound, like, sillier than it is but i guess that's the case with like most horror movies like i think yeah horror, yeah. horror has a ridiculousness at its at its core that like if you try and explain what it is it sounds really kind of silly <laughs> sometimes the only difference between comedy and horror is reaction so <laughs> but i do think there's something funny about it just that uh he's kind of invaded her life and he just keeps bringing her these meats and she starts getting deluded with the idea of the meats and uh, straying from her husband. It's a, it's a really special film that I don't think anyone will hear of, so that's cool. Mm-hmm. It's called uh, Ravage, you said, yes? Uh, Ravening. Ravening, ding, all right. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's weird. I mean, you wouldn't you wouldn't title a film that in, in English, so it's that's fine. Right, it's just one of those interesting translation things. I do think it's always interesting that the titles we get over here of translation, sometimes they're really interesting, but sometimes... Uh, you know, we could. Uh, there are better versions that they have, or we don't have the right words to convey the proper titling of uh, a representation of what the film is. Yeah, um, I don't know what the. I think it's like a mass or something in in Indian, but we don't know what any of that means. So. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, um, do we want to take a look at what's uh, new this week? Uh, should we do like a intro thing? Uh, yeah, sure. Let's do that. Here's a here's a pause to get into that. <laughs> Uh, all right. I always leave those things in when you do the verbal transitions. <laughs> what, the, like the sounds I do, like the yeah. Oh. Right. <laughs> if you say like, "Here's a pause," I, I always, I'm always like, "That sounds good." <laughs> I, I only leave it if it's funny, so don't worry about it. If it, if it sounds bad, I'm cutting that shit. But. That's good. I, I, I trust you. I just, you know, I find that my ignorance of what goes on in this podcast is the best way to protect me from being self-conscious about it. So I think you know, so. <laughs> by all means, you have like, no idea what kinds of. I have like air horns and stuff going off when you talk. It, it's yeah. it's wild. It sounds like morning zoo. By the time I'm done with production, I probably sound like a complete idiot, and you're probably like, <laughs> like in post, like I'm I'm spouting off all these facts, and then you go in afterwards and like fact check me live there in the podcast, yeah. and I just have no idea. What David said, according to Wikipedia, <laughs> does not match the facts. On with the show. <laughs> It, you know, it's just easier to live my life this way in complete ignorance of how you make me sound. I think it's protective. It sounds like an abusive relationship, though, the more you describe it. <laughs> it's very uncomfortable. Welcome to this week's Twin Geek Cast. This is Calvin. And uh, David here, as always. We have a packed show full of new releases like Joker, Judy, Dolomite. What kind of feature do we have in this society? This week we're looking at Francis Ford Coppola's 1992 gothic epic Bram Stoker's Dracula, starring Gary Oldman, Winona Ryder, Anthony Hopkins, and Keanu Reeves. Let's see, do we just get right into Joker or yeah. do we hit the other ones first? I think we got okay, here. I have too much to say about Joker. Okay, that's fair. So you went... Uh, and saw Joker. I believe it was like opening night, opening weekend. Yeah, uh, the day after opening there. I, I guess that is opening on a Friday, isn't it? Thursday's preview. 
uh, is that what it's called now? You know, I don't know. I don't. I don't often go. <laughs> you don't go to previous. Um, they've changed. They've changed it so much. They've moved back. We've had this discussion before, where you know, like midnight releases used to be a thing, and there was a whole culture around that, and then we just dissolved that because now they just release it, you know, seven p.m. or earlier on Thursday evenings. David, it's been twelve years. <laughs> um, so the thing about the Joker is, I don't like the movie. I mean, that's not terribly surprising to me. There was there was so many mixed reactions coming from one, one end to the other. Well, I guess they weren't mixed. They were polarizing. If it was mixed, then you would love it, because that's your MO. But. I think they're pretty mixed, but I, I do love Joaquin Phoenix, and that's the main thing. That's my takeaway for the Joker, is that he's going to get the nomination. I would be surprised if he does, but, you know, Black Panther got nominated for a bunch of stuff last yeah. year, so who who knows what's viable anymore for the Academy, but uh, generally, the, the the reception I saw when the first rolled out is heralded as, like, this masterpiece and won, you know, some awards and stuff, and everyone really gravitated towards that as some modern comic book, you know, work of genius or whatever, <laughs> and it was like, okay, well, that's not realistic at all, that's... and then a little later on... You know, we got all of the reactions. They're like, "Ah, oh, it's a giant piece of shit. It's awful, and it's in you know, it's trying to instill violence in people." So, and it's like, "Oh, well, this is not good either." So neither. I mean, I guess my other big surprise was that it's a left wing movie. It has ideas about housing and uh, mental health crisis and um, like income gap, and uh, it's. I mean it. It makes a lot of big gestures. It, it gestures like it's a Scorsese movie, but it doesn't have anything to back that up. I think it has a good premise. I think it has the best performance of the year. Um, I don't think it really matters, because uh, Todd Phillips just isn't really up to it. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably the biggest part. The biggest thing I've heard is that the writing and directing is pretty bad, but Joaquin really carries the film on his back. Fuck, he's good. <laughs> I mean, you like the Chaplin type stuff, and the way that uh, Phillips ev- invokes it, I think you'd be super annoyed. But I also I, think what, that you, by the performance, you'd be like, "God damn!" I saw a so clip. Good. I saw I saw a clip in a video of a review of someone doing something, and there was like this big banister for Modern Times mm. showing at like a theater somewhere, and I was like, and I caught that for a second. I was like, "Oh my god, I know what he's doing." Todd Phillips doesn't know how to create his own social commentary, so he's referencing back to films that do it way better. That's his idea there, because the the whole commentary is of that kind of uh, more socialist uh, idea going on in modern times going on there. There's a whole message and theme going on with that, and so that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to supplement, you know, actual thorough commentary in his film with references to that instead. And I think he shoots it the same way. I mean, I don't think he has his own style, so I think he borrows Scorsese's, which, you know, that's a lot of modern directors. That's what everyone does, but it's not special. It's kind of funny. I'm thinking back because there's also clips of like, like not commentary wise, but like in the last two John Wick movies, there's been Buster Keaton mm-hmm. clips projected in into them, which is really interesting. I just think that the the visual uh, reference of silent comedians popping up in these big tentpole movies is, is an interesting occurrence. There are times where it's really interesting. I mean, it's all really in his performance. Uh, what's helpful is that uh, this doesn't go away from um, Arthur Fleck, who's the main character. Uh, he's not hes not even really Joker most of the movie. I mean, this is an invention that doesn't really exist in the comics. and Of course, he's named like A. Fleck, like Affleck, which is funny. But um, 
you spend a lot of time with him and it's only the last 20 minutes or so and i thought it would be a lot more taxi driver i think people thought it would be um sort of radicalized right-wing incelish stuff but uh, there's there's really none of that really yeah, I was surprised to learn that was the case because it seems like a recipe for that, this kind of rejected by society yeah. idea and all that. But the fact that it does have this focus on more mental health uh, issues and whatnot, I hear, is is interesting. But it may be a little hollow because it seems like it might just be more of a window dressing of theme than actually committing to discussing that in full. Yeah, I think it's all empty gestures at this point. Um I don't think it arrives at anything particularly interesting or has a point to it, which is a horrible thing to say. I wouldn't match with the, the best performance of the year, possibly. It, it's really well, disturbing how that works. I think it's kind of odd to make a mental health crisis uh, such a centerpiece of your period piece film as well, because if I recall right, this takes place in the 80s. Yeah, early 80s, and, so, and it's it has a lot of the Reagan stuff going on inside it, so... I mean, you could look at that context. Oh, this is a commentary on uh, how Reagan forgot people in the streets and whatnot, but that doesn't say anything about that. I, I just don't know what moving it, you know, 30 years, you know, almost 40 years back does for, um, you know, providing social commentary for today. If all the themes of, like, mental health and, you know, eat the rich and stuff like that are all supposed to be applicable and reflective of today's society, what does putting it in the 80s do for you? Yeah, and... I feel like, in some sense, it's because he saw King of Comedy, right? Everything that's, about that's what this. I hear is that I keep hearing so many comparisons. Ever since it came out, it's just like it's it's King of Comedy and Taxi Driver and taken and given a comic book coat of painting, and yeah. that's uh, the main things I keep hearing about it. Um, and especially like the King of Comedy angle makes sense as well. Th- those films intrinsically are are like brother films or like 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 sibling films yeah. you know the the way they tackle things especially in de niro's performance which i guess is also interesting because de niro is in this film uh yeah what do i say about that without saying too much uh yeah, yeah he, I, he has like this fever dream about projecting himself into the into the world of his talk show because he didn't really have a father figure and his mom's dying and that's like his you know, one connection to, like, a parental figure that actually does something. So a lot of his yeah, so dancing, I think, is, like, based on De Niro's, like, opening monologue and stuff. It's it's kind of interesting. Well, it definitely feels like, if you, especially with De Niro being in the film, it does feel like a spiritual inheritor of King of Comedy in that sense, because that is his, you know, the Rupert Pumpkin character uh, uh, is, you know, trying to, you know, he aspires to be like Jerry Lewis's character, who is a TV comedian as well. Yeah. You know, and so there's that whole angle of that and that influence, and from what what I recall of hearing from the movie, there's like a whole bit with him and De Niro in the end on the talk show. Finally, that's yeah, that's all I can really <laughs> say about that. But yeah, there's a bit there that that's kind of oh god, I can't say anything. Um, it's like what right, if right. what if his character, the the pumpkin, what if he goes on from the king of comedy and and goes on and gets his own talk show and. That's this is kind of what that feels like. So, what if it were well, a that's continuation? Why I, say it's like a, I mean, I'd, that's why I say it's like a spiritual successor to it. It's like a, a like a handing over of the reins, yeah. essentially, like or like a passing of the torch, uh, like but like not an official one in any way because it's just like you got the actor who was in the other movie yeah. and you're kind of aping from that one, but not really like adding anything. That's that's the other thing I hear is that it's very derivative of those things, not necessarily. Uh, like building off of its own identity of that. 
I don't think it has an identity. And um, you remember that Scorsese was producing originally? Oh, yes, that's right. Oh my God, that was forever ago though, yeah. that that was said. So that might be oh. how how some of these pieces started forming together. But I've just realized that today that he was the original producer. Yeah, I remember the news of that. Like it was this weird thing. Like what Scorsese is going to produce a comic book movie? That seems very odd. Especially now, in light of the recent controversy. Yeah, I wonder if he backed off it, seeing what, how it was forming. Um, but I, I don't know. I feel like it really could have come together if he stayed with it. Yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like if this is where it originated from, it still couldn't help but be derivative uh, yeah. in general. Like, I just don't, I don't know why you would want to make like the Joker version of Taxi Driver, King of Comedy. Like I, I don't see the reason for doing that. Generally, it's there are two great masterful movies that already exist that do the same things and better, you know. And I think it shows something that we're obviously going to get now. This is the, uh, this is the largest October release of all time. Um, it broke all the records this month, so I think we're obviously going to get a lot more classic films revitalized in uh, superhero form. Um, the one surprising thing is it, it's still a superhero movie. Uh, Todd Phillips has been on the round saying, you know, he just didn't want to make one, and he wanted to make something else and put it in there. It's like, man, them, you really shoehorned a lot of Batman stuff in there for no reason at all, then. Yeah, I kept hearing lots of reference to, like, the Wayne family and stuff is all in there, and it's mm. formatted like a superhero origin story still, so... I don't know, so, like like ideas like that kind of ring hollow. Todd, Todd Phillips in general, all his statements were sounding them like, ah, oh, poor you. <laughs> I think that's good summaries that Todd Phillips is hollow, but uh, I mean, I, I see it. Like, if I made a movie, how wouldn't I do a Scorsese? You know, uh, that's my influence. <laughs> like, right, R- right. Raging Bull is where I was like, fuck, I, I love movies. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's, but you're not going to go remake Raging Bull with, like, the Submariner boxing dolphins or something oh yeah i am um so (laughs) you saw the scorsese news as well haven't you yeah yeah so that's a whole kind of interesting you know uh controversy kind of brought in with all this not only with the scorsese being attached to the film at one point but also the film aping from it and his whole superhero discussion here it's just really interesting you know convergence of all of those elements coming together um so what did scorsese say exactly i feel like he was kind of pressed in interview as we've been saying that and he ended up saying like oh marvel is like a theme park ride which we all know you just don't need to say it Right, well, there, so there's specific ideas there. He's like, he was asked what he thinks about them, he's basically like, I don't think much about them, you know, I don't care, they're not right. they're not cinema to me, is what he said. That was the big kind of, like, headline word there, is that Marvel movies are not cinema. Which, when you consider what he means by that, is not a radical statement. No. Nobody is thinking that these are some great gone-with-the-wind epic kind of films. That's not what they are, obviously. They're mass entertainment, and like he said they are like theme park rides that's not an insulting thing that's what we've been saying you know for a long time about many of these that's what blockbusters are meant to be in general people said that same thing about jaws when it came out it's but this is idea it's the idea of it being towed around like a headline being used by the media to discredit and rile up you know these uh fans essentially and saying that they're they're 
form of entertainment is not as valid as others, and that is a really shitty thing to do. I don't blame Scorsese at all in this case, because I'm sure he doesn't even think about Marvel movies really that much at all. He tried them, he said, they didn't do much for him, as with many people, and he just doesn't carry much interest. He was pressed into this question in an interview, you know, like he didn't bring this up of his own volition. Well, I think it's more on the interviewer than it's on Scorsese here, so I feel like he yeah. gets the flack, but... I don't feel like it was a fair question to ask. Of course Scorsese doesn't like fucking Marvel movies. Uh, no, of course Look not. at the movies Indeed. he makes. They're about people. They're about identity. And they're about Catholic guilt. You think he really cares about a cape movie? Come on. Yeah, well, and, and the other thing as well is that so many people have been trying to... Like like so many fanboys, I'll say, or whoever, have yeah. been on, on Twitter or whatever, trying to discredit Scorsese as a filmmaker by saying, Oh, he only makes gangster movies <laughs> and stuff like that. Which is just the most ridiculous thing to right, say. Right, like Silence is a is a great gangster epic. Yeah. I was saddened to see, like, you see some, like, I saw uh, James Gunn had uh, tweeted about, you know, seeing that and how he, he, he being a little, dis, uh, you know, disheartened by Scorsese's uh, reception of his kind of the movies he's been making and put so much into. And I think it's an interesting way to look at it because of all the marvel filmmakers we we really only look at like james gunn as like an auteur of the marvel cinematic yeah. universe maybe well, maybe the russo brothers as well but they don't really have a, f- a flair that stands out as much they they have a, a an overall vision i think for the franchise that you've seen carried through but they don't have like an authorial voice as much as gunn does for sure let's be honest so he probably only watched three movies i doubt he got to ant man and the wasp and all the great stuff that would have really inspired him no, what he probably watched Iron Man, Avengers, and <laughs> Thor. then uh, yeah, maybe maybe those are the three he watched. He probably didn't even get up to the Guardians films so, in general. So let's be honest, he's not which, commenting because he hasn't seen shit yet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, he he made his statement as a broad thing. He probably has not seen many, and this whole headline has just been ran with, and you know, been a whole big scandalous thing that that hasn't died for some reason and even now we're that, that's the reason we're talking about it honestly it's not because we want to incite any more conversation i don't want to talk about this at all it's a it's a dumb thing that happened that was manufactured by the you know the reporting on it here if we could just make any requests it's just to stop the conversation we put out really we retweeted the thing on the on the twitter sphere is that what we call it now? And it's that uh, it's a clip of Scorsese doing all the movies that he really loved, like Red Shoe. It's it's really heartwarming. So oh, when he talks, he talks about all those films with so much passion, and you know those, you know, and he sees the very clear, um, you know, influence of the directors, and that he talks from a very, you know, uh, filmmaker viewpoint there. And there, you don't see that as much in that because there is so much more of a... The Marvel films are so much more of a producer thing. I think uh, when I brought up Gone with the Wind earlier, I think that's actually probably a more apt comparison than I originally intended yeah. to there because, <laughs> Endgame because and Gone, with, Gone the Wind, with the Wind, they have a lot in common. Gone with the Wind is entirely a Selznick, you know, David O. Selznick film and not really a Victor Fleming film mm-hmm. in any sense. You know, there's not much of an authorial voice going through those. It was entirely put together by this this grand producer and that's his huge legacy and it's you know been known for like the whole time when people talk about gone with the wind or when you see the name on it it sells nick's name it's not fleming's at all there's the other feeling where marvel makes enough enough money it doesn't need to be respected um i think it it gets its return so i don't i i don't agree with that necessarily because you think it needs respect and money (laughs) 
I think anything does. Like, they're not equivalent, you know, values there, you know. And that's like saying that, oh, a film got, you know, you know, this film from a filmmaker was so greatly lauded. It didn't need to make its money back because it was appreciated in that sense. You know, I mean, that's not how <laughs> an equivalent exchange works. I think if you look at films Scorsese likes, none of them are after the 90s, let's be honest. I, I you know, I'm. I don't know, the ones he said in those interviews weren't, but that's probably because many of those were conducted during yeah. or before the 90s. I mean, if you look you know, at the list he puts out even recently, they're all pre-70s. Uh, they're pre-when he did his work. You could tell that he doesn't want to consider people that he's worked against or with. Uh, so every list they're, they're, he's ever made has never included anything after the 70s or 80s. I, I think it has in some, especially because if you listen to that interview, he names like 10 Kubrick movies, you know, in one of mm. those. He does Which like Kubrick. He, he has a great admiration. He talks about The Godfather 2 as one of the greatest films of all time, which is, I mean, like, that's an accepted fact among many of us here, but that's crazy almost because it's, you know, like, that's literally one of his contemporaries. He works alongside Coppola on a very regular basis, so to proclaim him as one of the great cinematic geniuses, I'm like, oh, that's, that's interesting. Yeah, it's a nice thing to do. Um... We also have, uh, similar to Joker this week, we have Judy, another movie I don't like with the performance that I do like. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's, uh, I don't know, j- j- just, I guess, to wrap up my thoughts real quick, one, one second on Scorsese, it's just that, like we said, the conversation needs to just die on it, because Scorsese didn't do anything wrong by proclaiming something that we all already feel, it was just toted in a way that was rather inflammatory. Yeah, go blame the journalist. Mm-hmm. But yes, Judy, you went and saw as well. That's the Judy Garland biopic. It's about her shows in London, but it gets a little bit into the um, manipulation and abuse she received from Hollywood. Not not as much as you'd like, but I think it's all there. Mm-hmm. I, I know I'd been talking about this one as a general interest when it was floating around the box office for a little while, sure. but never went to go see it necessarily probably because i was mostly just interested in in a casting perspective there and it seems that that was your sole takeaway from this yeah i think i've i think you'd learn more from her wikipedia than watching the movie of course it's only based on those london shows so you can expect that but um at the same time i'd like some insight into what it means to her as a person or something uh renee zellweger she's been away for about seven years uh she just took like a personal leave to go be a real person, so it's a fun return for her and one that's you know deeply flawed. And it's funny to see her uh, walk away from Hollywood and then come back and play this character who's ruined by Hollywood. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. It certainly is a great kind of return role. I mean, you couldn't ask for a better one in that no. sense. But I don't think that you know the film really was given the proper material to be a, a real return of any kind for for anyone here necessarily. There, mm. I've, I've never seen any advertising about the film in particular. I just saw. I think it's very very Oscar baity though. I think it has a great chance. I don't know any. Oh yeah, I just meant like like toted as as far as for you know publicity terms as a return. Like nobody's raving about no. Renee Zellweger right now because they didn't do anything to promote the film. <laughs> You're right though that it's it's entirely positioned and looks and even the, the little advertising you get and like the poster design and everything you're like oh okay so we're going for the best actress oscar this year i see i think it was like last year i think it was the wife that was like a movie that only existed for oscars that nobody else saw uh, was that like the glenn close yeah. movie that you saw <laughs> i think that was i think i think the only people that saw it are people that are vote in awards season like we could see it because we're get- pressed but nobody no real person saw that movie 
did it get nominated? I don't remember. It did. It, it didn't win anything, I believe. But but it did get nominated for best actress, maybe. I uh, who I'm knows? Looking, I'm looking. I'm looking it up right now, so I can know. The wife nomination. The wife. Did it get anything? Here. Oscar nominee, yeah, yeah, for for best actress. I remember looking at that. I'm pretty sure because we were joking. I'm like, did the people who nominated this actually see it? I don't think they did. I don't think it mattered if they did. Like I saw it and it didn't get anything more out of it than I did looking at the poster, which is just a. It's just God. It it's one of those, uh, you know, kind of end of the career. You, you want to cash one more Oscar in kind of performances. Uh, I don't even know if Renee will even go on and make a lot more movies, but uh, we'll see what happens now. Maybe not. She, she's never been like a major star or anything. No. I think I, th- I think she got the Oscar in Chicago. She did, Because that was, yeah, that was such a huge uh, or, uh, thing at that time. No, did she? I, I know she got it for uh, Cold Mountain. No, 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 no. No, no, it was, I'm thinking of Catherine Zeta-Jones yeah, won yeah. the Oscar in, in that year. And uh, yeah. she won it for Cold Mountain... Uh, right after that, though. Hmm. It's, yeah, it's that weird thing where they, they try and correct themselves. They're like, all right, they, they, they like incorporate all past performances <laughs> into future nominations as well. Cold Mountain's good. Um, yeah. I don't know. I, I don't have any thoughts. As you know, my selection of post-2000s, you know, viewing is very minimal, so. Yeah. Um... <laughs> I, I like Renee Zellweger. I think I like that about her, that she's kind of out of the uh, spotlight and out of the way that they do things. But uh, I don't know. I don't think anyone else is going to see this movie. So uh, there's, I think... there's a better movie that I think people are going to actually see that's also a biopic this week. Right. Uh, well, well, sort of this week. We got a little bit of an early scoop on it, don't we? Yeah. Uh, Dolomite's My Name, the, the new Eddie Murphy vehicle, which is actually a return. It, it feels like it. Well, and it feels like there's been more advertising for it as well, you know, kind of in contrast there, I think. I definitely have seen more, and Dolomite is my name, looks more like, oh, this looks like a genuinely interesting. And there's also just been more reason for, like, Eddie Murphy to have a comeback. Like, can Renee Zilwicker really have a comeback if she was only barely here to begin with? <laughs> yeah, right. And it feels like, yeah, Eddie Murphy's been doing such different projects since, you know, since the 80s and 90s that were more family-friendly, you know, going into dad mode. And now he's kind of back at his old comedy, the most offensive he's been since the 80s stand-up. It's like a, it's the, the Adam Sandler route of doing things, you know. You're really big at first in the 80s, and then you kind of die off and do family-friendly stuff, and then you come back with a big splash, your your punk drug love, or now your uncut gems as well. Right. And now we've got... I think it is my name. I think it's a eternal year for both of them. Uh, he plays opposite of uh, Wesley Snipes, who's uh, the Doerville who directed the original Dol- Dolomite movie. Um, Wesley Snipes is amazing. I wish he got a little bit more screen time. We do have my review up on the site if you want uh, a lot of inside information. But uh, it's a really interesting movie about how um, this guy who was just into like Motown R and B, you know, wasn't able to succeed at his own record store. So. He, he made a movie with black culture inside it that would appeal to what he said is like his five blocks of America because America has five blocks just like that everywhere. So that's a really uh, interesting idea. It has like Chris Rock, Craig Robinson, a lot of good names in it. Well, and it's, you know, like you said, it takes place right around those, the mid 70s time frame where black cinema was really beginning to explode into the culture here. Or at least you exploit, know, and- right? <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. Oh, and, and Rudy Ray Moore was very much like the center of that. You know, the, the Dolomite character is a staple of it. It's an icon of the black exploitation genre. And that was the thing about his director that uh, Duarville Martin, he had just come from like Black Caesar and he was in Rosemary's Baby and he was kind of like the center of it at that point. So uh, he tapped this guy. He's like, uh, you want to act in my movie? No, uh, I'll let you direct. Fine. And so uh, it's fun to watch them play off each other. And uh, he gets to build like a set in this dilapidated old apartment with a bunch of tweakers in it. So it's fun to watch him shoot that around that. Um, you believe Eddie Murphy when he is um, Rudy Ray Moore. You don't always believe him when he's Dolomite, though. Mm-hmm. That's interesting that you don't believe him when he's Dolomite because you'd think that uh, Murphy would be, you know, perfect to pulling off that very kind of exaggerated character. I, I think he's really good. I just think it's, I think it's hard. I think he has trouble transitioning between who Rudy Ray is, and I think he's kind of always Rudy Ray, which is a, I think it's a respectful way to do it. But I don't think you always, you know, you can't always suspend your disbelief that he's he's playing both parts. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's not exactly an easy thing to pull off. No. I'm sure the focus, the focus on wanting one to represent the person, seems like more where you would want to prioritize things as opposed to the theatrical character that he was known for. But you just want him to show up and say shit like "Dolomite's my name, kicking ass is my game" or something, right? You don't, you don't want that much out of this. I mean, you want right. this it, really it, fun story. Mm-hmm. Well, it seemed like you had a really fun time with it as well. Your review is very glowing. It's great, yeah. You can tell I'm more enthusiastic about this than the last two, because I, I have things to say. Mm-hmm. Certainly, it's a, it's a great time, and I imagine we'll talk about it a little bit more once it actually hits Netflix here later this month. Yeah, I, I think I'd encourage everyone to see it once it's out. I, man, this is a great performance, too. I I, I wish that was, this would win against someone like Phoenix, though, because uh, this is a much better movie. It's possible. I don't see why it wouldn't be reasonable. That'd be an interesting turn, Eddie Murphy getting a... Uh, an Oscar. That would be a crazy timeline to live in. Yeah, we just gotta see how Netflix does, because they're putting up... Man, they're putting up some good people this year just within Netflix. I, I think that's how they're going to get their recognition. The Academy has to cave eventually, I think. They can't ignore all of these prestige releases. You've got, like, a Scorsese film coming out on Netflix later this year. What, the Academy's not going to honor that? Right. Yeah, I think once you get Scorsese and De Niro and Pesci and... Uh, everyone lined up and then you got eddie murphy and then you got a soderbergh movie two of them done by netflix and man they just got some prestige coming in Mm -hmm. they're really carving themselves out as the place to be i think uh you know they're this is how they're going to maintain themselves when all of the other streaming platforms really come to fruition right because they have such a head start it's going to take apple 20 years to get in there so we'll see how that Mm -hmm. goes all right well i'm ready to turn my eye to our featured film this week let's put our spooky caps back on and uh, talk about this gem of a film dracula's my name and bleeding motherfuckers (laughs) is my game all right cut that's the podcast right there (laughs)
So, uh, uh, so this is my first time seeing this. Yeah, I was surprised by this. I was very surprised, and I told you you had to see this because this is one of my favorite films to watch during October. I I love seeing this. This is this is uh, un- you know unquestionably one of my favorite Coppola films, despite the fact that it's not as good as like those main like four masterpieces. Right. I I I enjoy watching this in some regards more than other ones. I I famously don't like watching the godfather though it is very perfect like i i don't return to it as much as i would others like i i'm much more apt to put in apocalypse now or the conversation again before i return to the godfather films they're just very hefty for me absolutely bizarre (laughs) they are hefty though there's a lot that you know it's a it's a commitment once you're getting into those yeah It, it someday we'll podcast about one of the godfather films if not both of them and then I'll talk about how great it is, and I won't have any complaints about it. But just in general, like I have not watched them in in years, just because I'm I so much more prefer uh, the the entertaining value of these these other ones that he have. I get so much more out of them typically, um, even though, like I said, this is by far not perfect. Bram Stoker's Dracula is is wonderful, but not perfect, <laughs> and we'll talk about those flaws. I feel like it says a lot that you call it. Bram Stoker's Dracula. I think it might be the most authentic to the story. It certainly is, and that's what Coppola does. He he famously likes to put the names. He likes to represent the author of the adaptation in his works. Like you'll see in later releases of The Godfather, it says Mario Puzo's The Godfather mm. above it as well. But this one is all heavily marketed. All of the posters proclaim it as Bram Stoker's Dracula. And also, just the other reason I do is because there's so many goddamn Dracula adaptations. To specify which one you mean, it's just so much easier for me to say. Like if I say Bram Stoker's Dracula, you know, you know I'm thinking of the Coppola film as opposed to this the Bela Lugosi one and a lot of them have significant differences from the books that uh this still kind of captures everything that happened in the cinematic history of dracula if you like a version of dracula and come into this one you won't be lost uh i feel like it it combines everything into a cohesive whole of cinema which is really nice Mm-hmm. You've got what? Like, you've got all of the, the shadowy and heavy gothic imagery of Nosferatu and its initial silent adaptation. You've got all of the theatrical and, you know, uh, brilliant staging aspects of the Bela Lugosi Dracula, the Universal One. You've got all of the blood and, you know, bright color and vibrancy of the uh, Hammer Horror Dracula all in here. Yeah. It all really culminates in this grand operatic, uh, you know, full epic version of it that's just completely you know uh designed to the walls in you know beautiful imagery i love it because it's like a phantasmagoric like fever dream of a sex opera it's all over the place in some sense but it's also very directed art ways it's it's so interesting that this is a film to come out in a a, like mid-career yeah it is Coppola, really? Because that's the thing, is that uh, generally we look at, you know, his, uh, like, a sharp just decline since the the 70s. Like, from Apocalypse Now onward, uh, Coppola's career just never quite measures up here. No. But Dracula is really like this, uh, it stands out as this spike back up in quality very suddenly after the disappointment of Godfather 3. You know, he comes in and makes this really dramatic, epic, grandly designed... Uh, horror, you know, masterpiece effectively here that really almost does stand toe to toe with all those '70s films that he made. In some sense, I'm willing to call this end of career. Um, I think I look <laughs> at it that way, and I think it's the end of what I'm going to watch of his work. 
unfortunately. Uh, it's it's certainly the case. I have a lot of interest in his potential upcoming project, Megalopolis. Uh, Megalopolis. Yeah. And uh, you know, if that can be a similar return to form like this was, then I think that'll be very exciting. But as as of this moment, like this is the last great film of Scorsese's career at the moment. Or a Coppola, yeah. Um, oh damn it! Ah, Coppola, no Coppola, just. Just take that and, and put it over where I said Scorsese. <laughs> It'll sound fine. Yeah, um, and I feel like there's something in it that he went and did this, and then he went right to Jack, right? Yeah, that was his next film, which is like a punchline almost. <laughs> right, and I feel like in some sense, maybe Jack and uh, Megalopolis have a little bit of what he was playing at here. Like, he was building an interest in, um, in preservation of life and... Something about aging and uh, living infinitely as like a mid-late career statement. So I could see what he's doing with like Dracula, Jack, Megalopolis, like floating his head at this time. Yeah, I guess if you're trying to search for the depths of... We don't have to psychoanalyze him. Theme, <laughs> theme in, in his Robin Williams movie about a kid that's 40 years old. I suppose you could do that, but... Uh... That's what I'm here for. <laughs> but no, the film really is is just this, like, first and foremost, everyone wants to talk about it from a production design standpoint, and that's really where the film shines. Like, uh, you know, I, like I said, there, there are qu- quite a few problems with it, but I, I tend to believe that the commitment to practical effects and beautiful production design and costume design and uh, some of the brilliant performances really outshine those, you know, kind of uh, sloppier aspects. Yeah, even, like, beyond the practical side, so many of the great effects are just done in camera. It's such a special and cinematographically beautiful film. It just looks gorgeous. Yeah, well, and the reason why as well, like, I think what's really interesting, the inspiration he took here is that Coppola was very familiar with the the Dracula material beforehand, uh, looking through some of the features, I watched some commentaries with him to prepare, and he talked about uh, reading the book to... Uh, some kids when he was like a camp counselor when he was like 18 or so so he was very familiar with the material and he also knew a lot of the background of the story with the the Vlad the Impaler stuff and how that influenced the book and all that and but but really the thing that stood out to him is how the book came out around the turn of the uh, 19th century there the turn over to the 20th century and how that was also the birth of cinema effectively as well mm. with the Lumiere brothers and uh you know, all of the, the magician tricks, all of your George Melies stuff and whatnot going on. And so that's what he really wanted to do is like, how would I tell this story with the technology available at the time the book was written? That's really special because that's what he does in camera. I mean, we get so much CG and computer work now that I feel like people are afraid to experiment. But when the camera glides and moves, you could feel like you're almost in a gallow or... You could feel like you're in some Romanian horror that feels otherworldly and non-U.S. specific. Um, my favorite, which is, which is really crazy, because <clears throat> the film was shot entirely on a soundstage. It was all shot on the MGM lot in Colombia. Sure, uh, I think my favorite parts are just the opening there, and, and it captures the feeling of the book that's so well preserved in my head, which is a lot of blue lights and Dracula as this force energy around a castle. And then it's building, like, along the ledges of the cliff, and it's coming up to the uh, castle there. Um, And I realized it was based on that really fantastic painting, uh, The Black Idol. 
Mm-hmm. And it's just like a guy who's like hunched over almost, and it looks like he's like yelling out, and he's like eternally damned to like sit there in a chair. That's the. It does the castle? The castle does look like someone perched on a throne, effectively, which is a really nice uh, design aspect. Yeah, it looks like a dying emperor that's lived there forever, and it just like evokes a feeling that you know s- it, there's nothing good in there. But yeah, the, I, I have to agree. The opening is by far the strongest aspect of the film. God, I love it's really it. Packed, it's really packed with a lot of those uh, early images, just from from the great opening with the design of the the armor, the very muscular looking armor that Vlad wears in the uh, prologue section. You got the cool battle sequence done with like the puppetry stuff going on, but then actually just all the stuff with the Harker's journey to the castle as well. You get so many examples like they really front load it with some really great special effects there probably the most uh, uh the, the the greatest example of the in-camera effect not only just the practical effects but in-camera effects is the the train passing over the the book mm-hmm. in there yeah and how that's that's just done with various models and right. force perspective there so it's like a it's like a 20 foot book you know yeah. 20 feet away from the camera with the model train going over the top of it there to create that perspective but then they also have the shots like uh harker and he's sitting in the the train car and you see dracula's eyes come up over the you know in the the background there on the mountainside and that's all done with a rear projection that's like something they could easily put in post wise they do all in camera they have you know the uh, the the plates in the back and the moving and they project that the eyes back onto there. You could really tell the difference in that sense that I mean it looks you know it looks believable and it looks tangible, um, and I I love that in such a gothic fantasy. Yeah, well, and it's, it's the thing is that it holds up so well despite the fact like uh, um you know what uh, you had terminator 2 a year before this film come out with its major advancements in cgi technology but still you know you look at how well dracula holds up here it's really brilliant and, and not only because of the great commitment to practical effects and in camera magic trickery because they do all sorts of interesting like cocteauian kind of mm. uh tricks with like reverse um you know reverse photography they like reverse the footage to make certain things happen there's that great scene later on with a lucy as a vampire where her presence comes down and you know like into the place and it lights all the candles uh up which is just how they did it is they you know they filmed the whole scene in reverse and would blow the candles out Mm. i think so much it has in common i mean structurally and shot wise with cocteau's beauty and the beast you could see so much in that yeah, no, absolutely. It's a huge influence, as are many of those kind of uh, fantastical films made around that uh, same time period. And again, all the way back to, you know, the early 20s and teens films mm. with all the effects there. Melies in particular, you know, famous uh, magician turned filmmaker, you know, pioneered many of those practical kind of crazy special effects. And that's what you see a lot. Like, And I think that's why we find that the first half of the film works so much better is because that's where all of the crazy special effects stuff is happening in Dracula's giant mansion there. You know, he's or the giant castle. Yeah. He's got, you know, all the weird stuff happening. you got, like, the rats running upside down on the walls. you got the... Uh, the shadows, the scene with the shadows moving independently of Dracula, those are so brilliant. They're so good. And I feel like it, it just moves differently once you move into the city or you leave the castle. So I think all the mm-hmm. really interesting stuff. Uh, for me, it's from the opening to the brides. Uh, that's when the film's really striking for me. Yeah, and, and this thing is that it's still really compelling afterwards yeah, it's because good. you still have the, the, the strong design aspects throughout and the brilliant 
practical work still throughout the way. It's it's more so in the story where things get bogged down because it is just uh, I think the fact that he wanted to commit so thoroughly to the Bram Stoker novel while also committing to the screenplay's emphasis on the the timeless love story, the romance angle of it, like it just really inflates the film and makes it a little dense. <laughs> I think that he wanted to make the ultimate Dracula the com- combination of everything. And it, I mean, it shows because it's, it's just a turgid story. I mean, just to include all of that is so much history. And, you know, it would be a thick book to include every influence and in every storyline of Dracula. So, uh, to- right. Well, and Dracula's, Dracula's already something of a, a kind of dense novel to get into because it is fractured into journal entries is, is how it's structured. Yeah. So you've got to kind of parse the story from all of that to begin with. Like, if you look at the the major Dracula adaptations, they're all very streamlined, especially something as early as, like, even, like, Nosferatu. It basically takes the basic beats. Get to Castle, you know, weird shenanigans, see the girl in the, you know, portrait, journey to England, mm-hmm. you know, fight yeah. the vampire. <laughs> I mean, and- it's structurally, yeah, it's, it feels that way. And it's funny, because you'd get, like, around this time, you'd have, like, Interview with the Vampire coming out, which is structurally kind of the same, and uh, these premiering, like, within a year of each other. So it was a very interesting time for vampire movies that we haven't seen since. Fuck Twilight. <laughs> uh, I think the best thing we've got, like, recently, we have, like, What We Do in the Shadows, which also takes, uh, like, like, there's a whole character that's inspired by the Gary Oldman Dracula here, mm-hmm. uh, and that's uh, Jermaine Clement's character. He does a lot of the similar things. He uses, like, they've got the whole see-me gag that he does, <laughs> like, you know, and you got the bit where Dracula tries to influence people in the film here by that. It's very mystical powers. And uh, we have Hotel Transylvania, blah, 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 right? <laughs> Yeah, that's more of like your your regular kind of <laughs> Hungarian Bela Lugosi influenced Dracula. That's still the iconic image of Dracula that everyone associates. But I think Gary Oldman, uh, he's he's by far and away my my favorite. He's just so committed to the role and everything they do with the design of the character and the makeup and the costumes, especially. My God, the costumes in this film are so brilliant. Uh, I'd say he's my favorite uh, as far as literature goes. It's still Anne Rice's Lestat. I just love that character so much, and I want the Lestat movie. So, someone let me direct something, please. <laughs> I, I, would you say this is your favorite Dracula, though? Um, I'd say Oldman's my favorite. I I can't draw the line yet. I I don't know if it's it's yeah. It's got to be my favorite movie. It has all the things of the movies I like. So yeah. Yeah, it's hard again between like this and Nosferatu are pretty equal. That's tough. Like, yeah, uh, and and it's such a but they're and they're very different. But I do find I, I I love this one so dearly, despite its many flaws because of things like I said the, the design and the beauty of the cinematography and the practical effects work. And Oldman, Oldman, oh my God, he's just so committed to the role here, and he's so wonderful. He really sells this amazingly uh, ancient, you know, and kind of fearsome character. It, throughout the many, many costume changes he has, he has so <laughs> yeah. many costumes, so many creature versions. At one point, he's a green ball of smoke, which is crazy. His transformations <laughs> like, are amazing, too. I, I think the thing is that the film grows with you the more you watch it, because you, you're able to catch more of the story. Hmm. Like, I know the first few times, like, I, I think the first time I saw it, when the werewolf stuff happened, where he was 
uh, sexually assaulting Lucy on, like, the altar place there. I'm like, what the fuck is going on here? What happened to Dracula? Who's this guy? I mean, Dracula's always had a little bit of that aspect, like, from the book, that he could turn into a wolf. Uh, we just talked yes. about not having good werewolf movies. Now this one's my favorite, so <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> oh, it's, it's, and that's the interesting thing, because what you know of Dracula just... Uh, if you have not read the book or you aren't familiar with the material in full, you know, like, he's this guy and he has a cape and he drinks blood and sometimes yeah. he turns into a bat. No, so and, and the bat the, is really the last thing you know of as far as he goes. So the main thing is he could he could turn into anything from, like, the air to energy particles moving around it to, you know, like a force field. And I really love that about this is it's really the first one for me that gets the transformation, right? Yeah, and he does. There's There's a... What there's the werewolf one, there's a bat one at one point. I love that bat costume. It's it's so terrifying and realistic. I feel like and this this weirdly like humane looking bat outfit. It, it's really grotesque. And then like I said, we have the green ball of smoke as well. He's got this weird uh, like like almost like cat like face later yeah. on when he's like age aged like towards the finale there uh-huh. where he's in that really wonderfully gold cloak. He gets so many. We should talk about costumes. They they're just yes, extravagant yes. here. So I want to highlight the the costume designer uh, Coppola specifically picked out, uh, and she was a a very well known uh, Japanese costume designer. Her name is uh, Aiko Ishoki. Okay. Uh, e- e- fuck, that's, that's not that's not. What how else had she done? Aiko. Uh, one of the things she had done right around this time as well was she did uh, Mishima. Okay. Uh, it makes sense. Uh, a little bit before this. I could see Japanese influence in, like, some of the dresses oh, that yeah. they get. Uh, I like that. Especially the, the, the uh, early on, the old man one where he first approaches, you've got that very nice silk red kimono mm-hmm. with the big the big bun look. The iconic uh, look from this film that's obviously very, you know, has that Japanese influence. It ends up looking like a Japanese Dracula occasionally. And then you got, like, the green dresses for the women that, you know, of course have obvious representations for... You know, like fertility, fidelity, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then you've got the wonderfully, uh, you know, beautiful uh, wedding gown that Lucy wears. And when she's in her, like, vampire outfit later on, that's what, you know, she's buried in. Mm-hmm. And it's that wonderful. It's got that giant frill around it. It's just this beautiful piece. Um, I guess we should get into a couple negatives. Yeah, I think we, we did do a good job representing here. Uh, there's... I guess the obvious thing, well, what everyone wants to bag on with the film, the one person we haven't talked about here is uh, Keanu Reeves, boy wonder of the '90s. So I guess he was just brought in because he was like a heartthrob, right? It wasn't it wasn't a smart casting decision. Yeah, and Coppola admits that that's kind of his reasoning why the film that the the big departure with this is that there is a heavy emphasis on the romance, and you could see that in the marketing of the film as well. The tagline for it is "Love Never Dies." I mean, that's, that was the <laughs> idea here. They're they're pitching it as this gothic romance epic, and they're trying to get those those teenagers in the seats. And Keanu was the kind of the ticket, I think, there mistakenly. Uh, not that because he's a bad actor or anything. He was a huge sensation in the 90s, and he was coming off of some major successes, you know, just before this, like what both My Own Private Idaho and uh, Point Break, I'm pretty sure, were a year before this. Yeah, he looks, he said as much that he just came off five different shoots. He's totally exhausted here. You could see him yeah. barely reacting in some scenes. Like I said, that yeah. in one scene where Draco turns into the bat and he, the giant bat, he looks like he's looking for his keys. He's He wants out. <laughs> 
his his performance is so bizarre and in, ineffectual, and the accent is it's bad. Is kind of the worst worst indicator of that. Uh, I mean, he just because he sounds very Californian still. <laughs> yeah, I, he just he just he's not in it. I mean, he, I don't know where he's coming from here. Well, the problem is that I feel bad because I don't want to just talk about how awful he is because. You know, he's trying. I can see that Keanu is trying. He sure. wants to be doing a good job. He's just, he's not that kind of actor. This is this is not a great casting decision. Uh, and I don't know if any amount of preparation could have really got him proper for this role. I said, I've said before that uh, Carrie Ells is in the cast. He's one of the other suitors for Lucy here who kind of pops around in the background. And he would have been a better Harker uh, for the most part. Yeah, I mean, like, just within the last year, he had done, let's see, My Own Private Idaho, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, Point Break, and uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures the year before that. He was stacked already. Mm-hmm. He, he had done quite a few shoots, many of them within the same year there, so going right into this, uh, you know, it just, it, again, and you could see based on that resume there that, well, like, maybe My Own private idaho is the only thing that really indicates like a, a another step in this direction yeah like everything else is is very you know surfer california how we think of keanu reeves in the 90s and it's that was so weird for a canadian <laughs> um what do you what do you think of winona i'm i'm gonna be a supporter i'm gonna step outside the consensus say that she's really good so so yeah, Winona, uh, more recently than Keanu, Keanu's always been the subject of ridicule, but she has been receiving almost equally as much uh, flack for her lack of a good accent in the film as well. But I have to say, I, I'm mostly on the same page with here, is that I don't find her nearly, if at all, as distracting as Keanu is. Keanu kind of works as a lightning rod of criticism for, yeah. me for the film. He just kind of takes it all in. <laughs> like, I, I can focus all of my frustrated energy of the film at Keanu. So maybe he, maybe it is good casting after all. <laughs> Man, I just feel like it. I don't know because they work well together when they're on screen. I suppose, but but then well, and, and the other hard thing is that you can't discount Winona from the film because the film only exists because of her. She brought the project to Coppola. Yeah. She was interested in doing this, and she said, "Hey, I want to do this film with you." So I, she was in there from the get go. She's the impetus to this. So I mean, I think she's fully in it. I I don't I discount whatever those reviews are. I, I'm pretty behind. Apart from accent, I'm into it. Uh, she, yeah, it's the it's the accent that people really really nail. If anything, like the writing for her character might not be as good. I don't think beyond the accent any issue with her performance is necessarily her fault i think it comes down to the again the the romance angle of things once we get into the the additional story elements that aren't present in the bram stoker novel yeah that's where things fall apart a bit more the film does have a little janky pacing yeah it's a slog i mean it's a turgid movie <laughs> no no I, I would not say it's a slog really but it no, I would not call it a slog, because that to me implies that it's just this awful thing to try and force yourself to sit through, whereas I, I feel like my interest in it wanes in many considerable ways throughout it, and I, and I have a hard time connecting with it for the entire runtime, which is not like an unreasonably long runtime. It's about two hours, so there's not really much an excuse for that. Yeah, the middle's very dippy for me, where I, I just, I, I had to stop the first time, and I watched about half of it, and had to restart when I was awake. Yeah, well, the thing is that you watched it starting late. That was probably part of the mistake there. I mean, I, I had no idea what I was getting into, and then I was like, oh, it's a sex opera. I better be awake for it. 
Yeah, it's uh, like, like I said, definitely, especially once we get to the suitor stuff, uh, you know, when Dracula kind of takes a bit of a backseat, it gets a little more snoozy, not as interesting as going on, and he pops up occasionally to do things. Uh, well, I find all the stuff when he's actually with Winona, like when he's out in his dandy outfit and they're touring the town and they see all the cinema tech stuff. That's all really cool, interesting stuff to me. That's mm. where the story picks up a bit again. It's and then like the finale is like somewhere in the middle where it's like this is fairly exciting, but also I don't know how much engagement to be with here because I'm not invested in the suitor characters and the Van Helsing stuff so much. Like I don't know, Anthony Hopkins he, he does a good job here, but I don't find him as compelling. I actually find what's really compelling is the alternative casting they potentially had for him. They originally were gonna get. Liam Neeson as uh, Van Helsing, but Anthony Hopkins kind of came in with his star power off of the success of Science of the Lambs and said, I want to do this. And so they, they basically had them had, had him saddled with that. So going by other smaller parts, I, I adore Tom Waits in this. The way he shows up is very fun. Oh, yeah, he's a great, great Renfield. It's too bad the Renfield stuff, again, takes so much of a backseat. Yeah. It does feel like it's it's so secondary even though it's a you know a primal part of the dracula story there yeah and man i mean tom waits is just so cool and it it's so different yeah and he he's one of those great committed character actors who just gives his all whenever you see him so and it's nice it, to see he him really here. does too <laughs> he's in it and there's so and there's so many weird design stuff going on in like the the sanatorium there or whatever, mm. where like you have guards with cages on their heads to protect themselves from the inmates, and Tom Waits has this weird like mechanical device on his hand so that he can't like like tinker with it or be attacked or anything. It's just these very interesting design aspects, but all that stuff like it just feels weightless in the story because you're like, what's going on here? How is this relevant? It's really bogging down the story. I think. When I was most connected to it, unfortunately, it's probably like during the sex scene with the brides. It, that like the image of it and the sound of it is stuck in my head. It's very. You, you mean the one with the the one with the Keanu stuff, or yeah, yeah, when he's when he's getting a when they're coming out of the ground and that's oh yeah, that when they come out of the bed when they rise out of that, that's a really great moment. It's more of that kind of designed magical trickery stuff, and it looks really great. And then you have got old men like towering over like just flying across the room to scare them all off <laughs> and as that weird effect where the like that, that human centipede like walk backwards that they they do that retreat oh it's weird it's very orgy-ish though everyone's like interconnected even their bodies are like intertangled and uh, the right. music's like that pulsating under the skin like like it's like a strip club mixed with a horror movie. It's it's that, like that. Da, that is, you know, mm-hmm. that is one thing certainly highlight as well is that the score for this is really uh, fantastic. Uh, the the main title theme that pops up a lot because that, that was the thing I, I, I uh, heard as well when I was watching the commentaries that there was really only like four tracks like like four samples they were given mm-hmm. by the the composer that they kind of had to find different ways of using so they would silence like the string section or like the brass section and just play the certain parts and recur throughout that's why you get that really uh, you know transportive theme that happens that really gives that gothic edge to everything throughout and the i guess i like something like this of course between this and under the skin of course i'd love them both because i love a classically trained musician that makes something that sounds like really alarming and hot like that so that's a cool thing to me Mm-hmm. It's it, it's very effective. I, and again, a lot of people like to bag on the romantic sexual aspects of this film Why? in that, that way. <laughs> I don't. It's it works really well. I think for it. I, I think it's because it's not 
part of the original novel. And again, it is additional stuff that inadvertently bogs down the, the story, but I don't feel like that's the part that doesn't work. I feel like it's part of the uh, not as well adapted aspects of the story, like the 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 hunting of the Dracula and stuff and the Van Helsing things that don't work as well, as opposed to the, you know, super romance, you know, eternal uh, love stuff. I think that works really well for me. Yeah, I think it all works for me in some in some way. I, I do think it's a a sloggy movie, and it does. It took me a commitment to get into it, but uh, I I really love the movie. Yeah, once once you do, if you do allow yourself to commit, you're gonna end up really, you know, falling in love with it. I think the design and the atmosphere it's all just much too strong for any of the flaws to really hold it back. Again, I you know we we spent a good portion of it here bagging on some things, and and very unquestionably there are undeniable major flaws in the film. But even so, I still am like. I love this almost as much as those four 70s masterpieces from, you know, Coppola. And, and in some cases, I enjoy viewing this one more than some of them. Uh, yeah, I could see it. I could see how it could be more enjoyable than, like, Apocalypse Now or something, which are, like, heavier right, well, films, but, you know. Right. Uh, and, and I meant more so in, like, comparison to, like, the the Godfather, per se, as I voiced earlier. Uh, but, uh, uh, again, I, I revisit this film every year. I don't revisit The Godfather or The Conversation every year. Sometimes it takes me a couple years to get to another viewing of those ones. But this one, I feel like, is an essential you know, October viewing for me. It gets me in that Halloween spirit more so. And it's that perfect kind of atmospheric, gothic, and you know, beautifully decorated film that makes me want to celebrate the holiday even more. I think if you want some bold, phantasmagoric images that will stick in your head the rest of the season, this is a good way to go this week. Yeah, there's a reason the imagery for the film has stood out as being so iconic and, you know, still so representative of the material, and it really stands as one of, if not the best, you know, Dracula adaptation done yet. 